As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your words so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name and let your face shine on us in Christ that we may be saved, for we pray in his name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 12. On many of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1078. And it's, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. Our text will really be verses 12 through 19, but kind of to complete the story, we'll read through to verse 21. So Mark 11, beginning at verse 12, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple." And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, As Mark has begun this new section recounting Jesus coming to Jerusalem and the reaction that provokes, particularly from the religious leaders, uh, we see this story that begins really the second day of Jesus in Jerusalem as Mark tells the story. Uh, The first day Jesus had entered in, he had entered in in what we sometimes refer to as his triumphal entry, had entered in as king and then had gone into the temple. And Mark told us that he looked all around at the temple and what was going on there, presumably, and then as it was late, left and went back to Bethany. And now this is the next morning as he's returning to Jerusalem for the second time and coming to the temple to do what he does in the temple. And we're told this sort of strange story that brackets the incident of the temple uh, with Jesus cursing the fig tree. And so it's a somewhat puzzling story for us and uh, maybe seems out of character for Jesus to curse this tree and to violently cleanse the temple. Um, So what are we to make of this story? How are we to think about it? And the way I want to think about it together this morning is just to think about the Lord's curse pronounced and the Lord's cause proclaimed. That's how I want to think about these two events, the Lord's curse pronounced and the Lord's cause proclaimed. Uh, 
Um, We have this strange incident. The morning they're going to the temple, Jesus passes by this fig tree. And Mark tells us it's not the season for figs in Jerusalem. This is an important agricultural note um, in the text. So we might wonder then why does Jesus go to the tree if it's not the time for figs? Isn't he doing something kind of unreasonable in going over to this tree and, and cursing the tree when he doesn't find fruit? might strike us all as as being sort of strange, and that's probably because most of us don't know much about fig trees. Uh, Maybe you're experts in fig trees, I'm not, Um, but apparently when fig trees have leaves on them, they usually have fruit on them. Uh, That usually is a sign that the figs are growing, and so it may well have been that there were many wild fig trees growing without any leaves, but Jesus spots one that does have leaves, and even though they're out of season, this tree looks like it's the kind of tree that would have fruit on it. And so we're told that Jesus goes over to see if he could find any figs, for he was hungry, and finding none, he curses the tree. Uh, Peter calls it a curse in the conclusion when they go by the next morning and find the tree withered away to its roots. So how do we make sense of this incident? Um, You or I might have cursed the tree out of anger or frustration if we were hungry and expected to find fruit. Of course, Jesus doesn't do anything sinful in this. Um, and we, we may feel sorry for the poor fig tree. I always did when I was a kid. I thought, you know, this poor tree was just standing there, and um, it, got, it got cursed. And so how are we to make sense of this? And, of course, the Lord, the tree doesn't belong to anyone. The Lord's not taking anyone's fig tree by doing this. And, of course, ultimately the fig tree belongs to him, um, and he's using this tree really to teach a lesson. Um, if we really want to understand this story, I think the first thing that we need to really see and understand is this. Jesus is acting out a parable here. Sometimes he's told parables in stories, but we should see this as really a parable in deeds, as one person said, or an acted out parable. Um, this is a parable that Jesus is proclaiming to the people in doing this. And so if we understand that it's a parable, really a parable in action, then we can kind of understand what this is meant to communicate to the disciples who are seeing and hearing all of this. And secondly, we need to understand that this is preparing us for what Jesus is doing in the temple. These events are connected. Uh, What Jesus does in private with this fig tree is really what he's going to be doing publicly in going into the temple. So if this is an acted-out parable, then what is the message that this parable is communicating to us? How are we to understand this parable. Well, first of all, we need to understand that the fig tree in the Old Testament is often a symbol for the people of God. It's often a symbol for his people, Israel. And that's how the tree would have functioned in the minds of those hearing this story. It would have been a picture of the nation. Um, and what kind of picture of the nation is it presenting to us? Um, a tree that looks good on the outside but is bearing no fruit. A tree that looks like the kind of tree that should be bearing fruit, but on close inspection, it isn't. There's nothing growing on it. There's nothing fruitful. It looks good, but it's not fruitful. I mean, what is the message that's being communicated to us here? Um, The Lord is looking for fruit in his people and not finding it. They might look good on the outside, but they are not bearing any fruit. And the figs stand for fruit, so what does the fruit really represent? What is the fruit that Jesus is looking for from the people of God? It's repentance. It's faith. 
It's obedience. This is the kind of fruit that Jesus is always seeking. This is the kind of fruit that his people should have been bearing. A repentance over their sins, turning from them and turning towards God. Faith in God in his covenant promises, looking to him alone for salvation. Obedience, the fruit of faith that flows from faith in grateful service to God. That's what Jesus has come looking for. The Lord of Israel has come to his people seeking this kind of fruit. He's hungry for it. It's the kind of fruit with which he will be satisfied. But when he looks for it, he doesn't find it. And I think if we understand this in terms of a parable, then what Mark says in verse 13 is very sad and striking. It was not the season for figs. It was not the time for figs. It was not the time for fruit in Israel. There was nothing to be found when the Lord came looking. And so what does the Lord do in response? He pronounces that curse upon the tree that is so full and so final. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Uh, The way that's expressed sort of woodenly in Greek is, may no one ever eat fruit from you into the age. It's a very serious word. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is helping us to understand the gravity of what is happening as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. To understand the gravity of what Jesus' story has been telling us. Because Mark has taken pains to talk to us about John the Baptist, to talk about his ministry, to talk about how that relates to Jesus' ministry as he comes. And what did John represent? What has Jesus taught clearly that John represented? He was the Elijah that Malachi talked about. The messenger of the Lord who would come and precede the Lord's coming. And what was Malachi's job? Or what was Elijah's job according to Malachi, this messenger who would precede the Lord? It's the last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." He is going to prepare the way to make you ready for the Lord's coming. And what did John the Baptist preach? He preached the need to bear fruit. Um, That's specifically what we're told in Matthew's account of when Pharisees and Sadducees come, many of them come to John's baptism. And you remember what John said to them in Matthew 3? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because there's a Lord coming. And you need to be ready to meet him when he comes. That was John the Baptist's message. And did people listen to him? Well, surely there was a faithful remnant that did. Right? Just as we read from Malachi in our assurance of pardon, he talked about a faithful remnant in his evil day that turned and remembered the Lord, that feared him. 
that was the Lord's treasured possession. Certainly there was a remnant who listened to John the Baptist and turned. But most of Israel, and certainly most of Israel's leaders, did not. In fact, Jesus said of John, they did to him exactly as they pleased, as it was written of him. How they treated John shows us how they treated his message. And what was the warning that Malachi gave? If you will not listen to the Lord's messenger, what will happen when the Lord comes? He will strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is what the Lord is coming to the temple to do. To show that that decree has been pronounced. That they have not listened to the messenger of the Lord. And therefore the Lord has come in judgment. And this private act with the fig tree is preparing them for the public act of cleansing the temple that Jesus is about to do. And this is important for us to recognize, both to understand the temple incident, I think, properly, but also to make sense of this fig tree principle and also to think about this for ourselves. Because what is the message of the Word of God? That the Lord is coming. He's coming again. And when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, what will he be looking for in the world? He will be looking for fruit. He will be looking for the same things that we've already mentioned. He will be looking for repentance. People who are sorry for their sins. He will be looking for faith. People who are trusting in him alone to save them from their sins. He will be looking for the fruit of that faith. Grateful obedience. Lives that demonstrate a desire to live according to all of his commandments. And this is the hope of all of, the, all of us who put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That by his grace we will be those who bear the fruit he's looking for when he comes. That's what Jesus promised in John 15 verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is a call to all of us to make sure that the Lord finds this kind of fruit in our lives when he comes, for he is coming. Lest we be struck with the decree of utter destruction. We have to turn if we want to be saved. That's the message of the fig tree and the curse pronounced, and that's also the message of the temple cleansing as the Lord comes and proclaims his cause there. So we see the Lord's curse pronounced and then the Lord's cause proclaimed as he enters into the temple. This acted out parable of the fig tree is meant to prepare us to understand the significance of the Lord's coming to the temple. Because he comes to proclaim the Lord's cause against the temple authorities and he proclaims the Lord's cause for the temple realities. That's how we want to think about these things. He first proclaims the Lord's cause against the temple authorities. We have to remember at this time of the year, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are in Jerusalem uh, for the festival, for Passover at this time of year. Um, the, the fig tree not being in season helps us to know about what time of the year this was. This is the time of Passover. And hundreds of thousands of people would have come to Jerusalem during Passover. And if you come to the great festivals in Jerusalem, what do you need? Well, when you're in Jerusalem, you pay the temple tax. And you have to pay the temple tax in the right kind of coin. 
so you need your money changed so you can play the right kind of coin. You come to the temple, you need sacrifices, so we need to buy sacrifices. So there are probably lots of people who are buying and selling at this time of year to try to serve all of these pilgrims. This would have been like Black Friday for them. Uh, for people who buy and sell things, for money changers. This is where you made all your money in the year. All these people are there to, to, to come to your markets. And the temple authorities, as a relatively recent innovation in Jesus' day, had decided, you know what we should do is set up a market right here in the temple. That way it's one-stop shopping for everyone. They can just come right into the temple. They can buy the things they need right here in the, in the outer court. And then they can have what they need to go in. Oh, yeah, and this will help us compete with all of those markets on the Mount of Olives that have usually been serving people that we don't get any cut of. Um, and we can actually read in antiquity the, the struggles between the, all the markets that were older on Mount Olives not being really happy that Caiaphas set up new markets right here in the temple court. This would have been a new innovation in Jesus' day and one that Jesus shows he's not very happy with because when he comes, he shuts it all down. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He overturns the seats of those who are selling pigeons. It's interesting that Mark mentions those particularly because pigeons were, or doves, because those were uh, the, particularly the sacrifices of the poor. Um, Jesus interrupts the whole thing, won't allow people to carry goods through this place. Um, and what is the place really where all of this is taking place? It was known as the court of the Gentiles. Um, it was the court around the temple. It was not actually considered a particularly sacred space. It wasn't part of the temple proper. Um, it was a place where Gentiles could enter into that court and come somewhat near the temple. But further in, there was a wall of separation, a four-foot-high wall that had gates on it and posted warnings saying, if you're a foreigner and you pass by this gate, you'll be put to death. The temple is only for Israel. And so you could come into this court of Gentiles, but no one thought of it as a particularly sacred space. The temple was for God's people. The temple was not for foreigners. And so foreigners could come close. They could come into this external court, but it wasn't really particularly sacred. And because it wasn't particularly sacred, that's where Caiaphas had set up these markets. And this is where all of these events are taking place. And when Jesus comes and does this, this is really an extraordinary declaration of his own authority to do this. To just shut this whole thing down um, is really an announcement of who he is. And really taking it to the religious authorities in a whole new way. Um, throughout the Gospel of Mark, they always have been coming to Jesus. They come to Jesus to test him. They come to Jesus to ask him questions. They've sort of always been on the offensive in the Gospels in more ways than one. And now Jesus is really turning the tables, literally and figuratively, on them by coming and kind of bringing the fight to them and making this declaration of his authority by shutting down everything that's going on in this court and really giving them a severe condemnation from God's word. Um, this would have been a, a punch right between the eyes to these people, what Jesus says when he pronounces why he's doing what he's doing. Because he does these things, and then he really explains what these things mean. In verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
This is a severe prophetic announcement. Because who is the them he's talking to? Well, again, there's hundreds of thousands of people coming through this temple court, so there's all kinds of people that would have heard what he says. But who is the them he's really talking to when he says, you have made this a den of robbers? It's the temple authorities. It's the people who've done this to the court of the Gentiles. It's really some of these same chief priests and scribes who hear him saying this. And why would this have been such a severe indictment? We really have to understand the two quotes from the prophets that Jesus uses here. If we really want to understand the severity of what he's saying to the leaders of Israel. Because the first part of the quotation is from Jeremiah 50, uh, sorry, from Isaiah 56, 7. And it's a section of Isaiah's prophecy where he's talking about the future glory that's going to come to Israel. And he talks of the future glory in terms of eunuchs and foreigners, people who have no place among the peoples of God, and coming and saying, it's glorious here, but we really have no part. We can't have a part. We're not part of Israel. And that's a passage that holds out this future glorious hope that even eunuchs and foreigners will have a place among the people of God. It's a glorious future that the Lord promises where eunuchs and foreigners and the people of God all together will be able to come to the Lord's house and fully participate in what's going on there. And we read the the sort of height of that promise in Isaiah 56, 6, and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Sometimes I think we focus on the fact this was the court of the Gentiles, this was the only place Gentiles could come, and so the Lord is trying to sweep this out so the Gentiles have a place to pray. And that's certainly part of it. But the court of the Gentiles still told anyone who was a foreigner, you have no place here. This is as far as you can come, and this is not really the holy place. There's a wall there that says you can't come any further. It was a court that testified to your exclusion. And if Jesus' purpose was just to clear out a space for Gentiles, I don't think that lasted very long. It lasted probably about as long as he was standing there. And I'm sure as soon as he left, when they were sure he was gone, they set it all back up again. If that's all that he was doing in this action, um, it was actually a rather small reformation. I think what Jesus is saying here is something much more radical Because what did Isaiah speak about? He spoke about a day when the eunuchs and the foreigners would not just be able to come outside the temple looking in or not just praying towards the house as Solomon was hoping for, but look, would be able to come in and minister and serve and offer their sacrifices and have their sacrifices be accepted. This was a future of a picture of glorious future where all people can come in. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus brings up that future glory that the temple was supposed to represent. That glorious picture that Isaiah gave. 
And I think Jesus brings it up here because of what Isaiah said next in his prophecy. He said, this is the glorious future that God's place is supposed to represent. And then Isaiah immediately turns and says to the leaders of Israel in his day, and what have you made it? This is the glory it should be. What have you made it? You've made it something horrible. You've made it something tragic. Isaiah compares that glorious future to the sad reality he saw in his day. And in the very next section says, in Isaiah 56.10, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Isaiah said to the leaders of his day, look how glorious it's supposed to be, and look what you've made it. That's why this would have hit them right between the eyes. These chief priests and scribes would have known Isaiah and would have known exactly what Jesus was saying to them. Because what Jesus was saying to them is, you're the kind of people Isaiah was talking about. Who've obscured the glory of what this place is supposed to be. Because you are blind watchmen. And people who are only in it for your own gain. Oh, what a devastating word he brought. Um, And it's doubled down when he concludes with what he says from Jeremiah. As if that wouldn't have been bad enough for the leaders to be compared to those Isaiah condemned. He also compares them to those Jeremiah condemned. Because he says in the next breath, my house was meant to be a house of prayer for all people, but you've made it a den of robbers. Oh, that would have hit them hard to hear that. And why? Because that's from Jeremiah 7.11. You all knew that. I'm not telling you. You knew that. It's from Jeremiah 7.11. When when did Jeremiah say that? When Jeremiah stood in the gate of the temple and preached his famous sermon in Jeremiah 7 against the leaders of Israel in his day and said basically the same thing to them that Isaiah was saying. And he said, you know, you are people who go out and do every manner of wickedness in the land. And then you think you can run back here back here, and offer some prayers and put some, some things on the altar and you can just square the account with God. You go out and live like hell all week and then you come to the temple and say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, you know, what you've done is made the Lord's house like a cave where robbers go to hide out. After they go out and they do all their wickedness, they go running back to their hideout. And that's what you've made the temple. You've made it your your robber's hideout. It's interesting, the same word that's used for robbers here is the word that will be used of Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rebel. And that's what the Lord is really saying to his people through Jeremiah. You go out and you do every manner of wickedness in the land, you rebel against God, and then you run back here and you make God's house a den of robbers like a hideout where the rebels come after they wage war against the Lord. And Jeremiah said, and and God will not have it anymore. 
He sent you and he's called you and he's told you to stop and you don't listen and you don't relent. So you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to destroy this house. If you want to use it as a cave for a hideout, he's going to raise it to the ground. He's going to do to it what he did to his house at Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was taken into battle without the Lord's say-so. And his priests were killed, and the ark was captured, and the house was destroyed. And Jeremiah said, you know, the Lord is going to do the exact same to this temple, because you've made it a den of robbers, and the Lord's not going to tolerate it. And so if that's what you want it to be, he's going to raise it to the ground. You see how this would have come with such force to the leaders of Israel to hear this? Because what is... Jesus saying to them, you're just like the people Jeremiah was talking to. That's how you've treated the Lord's house. Like a robber's hideout to run to. And the reason the people treat it this way is because you leaders have failed them. Jeremiah condemns the leaders in a really interesting way. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 8, 5 through 13. Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord so that that wisdom is in them. What wisdom is in them? From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when when there is no peace. Were they ashamed at all when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Listen to this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away. Who did Jeremiah blame for the sad state of things? The lying pen of the scribes? The people who are greedy from their own gain, from prophet to priest. And when the Lord came looking for figs, there were no figs on the fig tree. This, I think, is why the people are so astonished at what Jesus says. Because they're looking at all these leaders who are in charge. I mean, you can imagine the people have no say in what goes on. And they're looking kind of sideways at all these chief priests and scribes and saying, and he is really giving it to them. The people say, still say, oh, snap. Um, that's, that's as cool as I am. The people might have been saying, oh, man, I can't believe he just said that to them. <laughs> Whew, he's given it to them. Um, what is the Lord saying by saying this? He's not only saying that they've been completely faithless in what they've done. He's also implying that the Lord is about to raise this house to the ground the way he raised the other houses to the ground. What is that meant to bring to mind for God's people? The temple realities that they always should have spoken of. The glory of the Lord. 
the love of the Lord, the way the Lord reaches out to people. But he said, you know, you might look around this place, it might be great, it might be one of the wonders of the earth, it might be covered in gold, but it's a tree with leaves and no fruit. It's not what it's meant to be. In Psalm 78, when it talks about what happened to Shiloh, it said, you know, after the Lord destroyed the house, he raised up another sanctuary, a sanctuary that was high, that went up to the heavens. And you know what that sanctuary was? Interestingly, Psalm 78 says it wasn't Solomon's temple. That's not the sanctuary that replaced the house that was destroyed at Shiloh. You know what the sanctuary was that the Lord raised up? It was the king. The king was the sanctuary. It was David who was raised up as a sanctuary for the people. It was David that showed the presence of the Lord among his people. He built his sanctuary high like the heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant. It was the king who was, as one person said, the most precious emblem of God's presence with Israel. David himself, the king chosen by God. What is the temple reality that Jesus is proclaiming? The Lord is going to raise this sanctuary, but he's raised up another. He's raised up the most precious emblem of his presence with his people. The glorious symbol of his presence, God with us. The eternal king, Messiah. He is heavenly Jerusalem's king and he is heavenly Jerusalem's temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem because the Lord God Almighty is its temple and the lamb. He's the true king. He's the true temple. He's the sanctuary of God come in the flesh. There's no more hope in that old order. The hope has come in the king. And how did the leaders receive him? They sought to destroy him. They showed it was a house of rebels. In his own house, they're plotting his destruction. And we are being called not to do the same. He is the reality, the glorious reality to whom every person can come from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. He is the one Isaiah said would gather the outcasts of Israel into one. This is the the reality that's being proclaimed. The old order is being done away with, and that's okay because the king has come. There's a new and better order being established. And our hope and our trust is to be in him. May we all embrace this king by faith and by his grace enter into his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for raising up a sanctuary for your people. We're reminded in these passages that every earthly house your people have built has been destroyed by you on account of our unfaithfulness. We thank you that in these last days you've raised up another sanctuary, high as the heavens above even our King, great David's greater Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that he gives that all people from every tribe and people and nation can be gathered in. The outcasts of Israel come home because of what he's done. 
We pray that you would work in us by his spirit, that we would bear the fruit that he's looking for, repentance from our sins, faith towards you, and faith in the son you've sent, and that we might bear the fruit of faithfulness in our lives, that you would see the grateful obedience of a people who desire to live according to all your commandments. And when Jesus comes again, may he find us faithful and fruitful, clinging to him who is our only hope and in whose name we pray.